Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. It is the first Monday of the 2020 U.S. Open. Congratulations everyone, you've made it 211 days since the last ball was struck. Best of five set major tennis. So that was Sunday in Australia. It was 211 days ago. Finally, major tennis is back. And while everything is different in 2020, including the fact that the U.S. Open is the second major of the year instead of the fourth major of the year, one thing will not be changing. And that is the first Monday of a major means 30 minutes of comment response. That has been the tradition. That will remain the tradition here on Monday Match Analysis. A quick reminder that Monday Match Analysis is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, where you can leave a review, by the way, on Apple Podcasts and a rating, which is much appreciated. Also, for continuous coverage throughout the tournament, I encourage you to follow me on Twitter, at Gil Gross is the handle. Lots of comments to get to, over a hundred, I believe. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a time cap on this, uh, which is 30 minutes, but I will try to get to as many as I can. First one comes from Sean. Do you think Djokovic's neck injury will be a serious issue for his U.S. Open chances? First of all, yeah, you gotta. It's something you have to watch. I mean. At, at the end of the day, it was an issue two days ago. Tonight, as of this recording, he will play Demir Zumer in the first round. Two days ago, it was an issue. So how could you go into this tournament and not have a concern that it will be an issue uh, moving forward? Of course, you have to. You have to believe that it could be an issue. With that being said, tightness in the neck is generally something that resolves itself in time. It's it's quite strange, actually, because it seemed like it went away. Djokovic, of course, pulled out of the doubles before his first-round match at the Western and Southern Open. Then it seemed to be bothering him against Barankis, but he worked through it. By the time he played Sandgren and eventually Struff in the quarterfinals, and for most of the RBA match, it seemed like the issue had subsided. And then it, it came back against Milos Raonic in the final. And again, Novak worked through it. So it's kind of strange how it, it seemed to come back. Generally, tightness in the neck is something that you would think would resolve itself in time. It's not, it's not a concern as concerning as if you're having joint pain or if you're having, you know, some kind of legitimate muscle strain or muscle pull. It's not that kind of injury. So that's good news for Novak at least. But yeah, you watch the serve tonight. We'll see what the serve looks like against Amir Zumer and is Novak still in discomfort? It's definitely something to watch. Ultimately, the reason I picked Djokovic to win the U.S. Open this year is because I believe that if he brings his best level to the court, there is not anyone in the field who can beat him. And that's my observation from watching all the tennis last week. If something is to stop Novak Djokovic from lifting the trophy two Sundays from now, I think it will be most likely that his body will break down and that something will go wrong physically. And I believe that's a possibility. You have a long layoff, then you have three weeks of intense hardcore tennis nonstop. I think there will be some injuries 
over the course of the next two weeks uh, at the U.S. Open. I just think there will be. So Novak is not excluded from that, especially because of all the tennis he played last week going all the way at the Western and Southern. We'll see, though, because I'm not saying if Novak loses, it'll definitely be be because he broke down physically, but it's just you got to see what the outcome is, and then you got to analyze the outcome. That is certainly my job, so I'll be doing that. Talk about Krajinovich. So I would love to have a little bit more than I do on Philip Krajinovich. Because he's been around a while. And and from time to time, he's put up really, really great results. Most notably, he made the final of a Masters 1000 event in Paris 2017. Lost to Jack Sock in that final. Um... The first thing about Krajinovic is he hasn't been able to stay healthy. If you look at his career, that has constantly derailed him. That has prevented him from building up any kind of momentum or developing any kind of consistency on court. The The list of injuries is long and extensive for Krajinovic. So that's the, the first thing. When it comes to his game, I really like the way he moves inside the court. Uh, I, think he, I think he's got a... A pretty good transition game. He enjoys taking the ball early. He's got good racket speed, good spin on his forehand, finds good angles on that wing. The backhand is um, is kind of your average backhand. The movement is kind of average. The serve is kind of average. At, at 28 years old, I see Krajinovic as a player who has now entered his prime and could will probably... If he stays healthy, might be able to manage to stay in the top 30 for for a couple years. But I, I don't see him as someone who can do any major damage at majors or 1000s events. Perhaps he can contend for some titles at 500s and 250s. We'll see if I'm wrong. That's my sense right now. I'm not blown away. I'm not blown away. He played amazing last week. He played great tennis. But ultimately, sometimes that happens and... Players can play a little bit above their uh, average level. Have players worked out how to beat Medvedev? He thrives off his opponent's pace, but seems to struggle when guys aren't hitting fast ground strokes at him. Medvedev has... It's easy to offer up a scouting report on Daniil Medvedev because he has very distinct strengths, very distinct weaknesses, often the case when someone has an unorthodox game as Medvedev does. But it is true that everyone knows that taking pace off the ball is generally effective against Medvedev. Therefore, if you have a slice, if you have a backhand slice, when you're playing Medvedev, you should use it 50% more than if you were playing any other opponent. I think people also know that going to the net is the best way to break Medvedev's defenses because his movement tends to be so good and he's so skilled defensively, uh, the only the only hole in his defensive armor is that he doesn't have great passing shots because he lacks spin. So he doesn't find the same angles. He doesn't dip the ball low very well, not to mention the fact that he lets his court position drift way back where um, 
he's more susceptible to be attacked by net rushing. So everybody knows that, but it's it's just it's easier said than done executing. But it is true that players know what to do against Medvedev. Was that the case last summer when Daniil had been known as, you know, kind of an erratic player, really weak on the forehand wing, doesn't always try his hardest on the court, mentally volatile, sometimes gets too aggressive off his forehand. That was kind of the Daniil Medvedev MO. Like, talented, great backhand, but all of those issues. Player, you know, hovering in the 50s, but young, and, and will probably do some damage. Last summer rolls around, whoa. This guy is incredibly fit, incredibly consistent, uh, mentally strong. Who is this guy? Did players really understand exactly what the best way to play him is? No. Now he's got a target on his back. So not only will it be hard for Daniil Medvedev to play the level that he did last summer, but now players know exactly how they need to play him. When RBA was down against Medvedev in the quarters at the Western and Southern, and when he lost that first set 6-1, he knew, okay, uh, let me just go to the net as much as I can now because I need to change something and that isn't normally my game, but I know that that's sometimes a good thing to do against Medvedev. And even though it's not my game, I'm going to go do it. And he made the change. He solved the problem. And it changed the match. Flipped it around. So yeah. Players know how to play against Medvedev now. But look at a guy like Andre Rublev. What's he going to do? Take pace off the ball? It's not his game. What's he going to do? Slice his backhand? He doesn't really have a good slice backhand. So we can't. he can't just do that. What's he going to do? Go to the net? Um, I mean, his volleys looked much improved against Dan Evans, but he's not just going to go to the net a ton, I don't think. That's just not really his game or his strength. So that's why with Medvedev, it's funny, I, I kind of love picking his matches because I kind of know what kind of players will give him trouble and what kind of players won't. Okay. I have huge respect for Novak. Recently, I've been ob been observing his timeout behavior in important matches. What are your thoughts on Djokovic taking breaks and medical timeouts at crucial junctures of a match to get the opponents out of their momentum? Yesterday, RB RBA said roof delay caused him to lose momentum. It certainly did. But in the same set, Djokovic took a toilet break and a medical timeout. He was fine against Sandgren and Struff. I observed the same in the 2020 Australian Open final. Similar medical timeout happened against Vavrinka in the 2016 U.S. Open final. Do you think uh, such medical timeouts in these crucial matches can affect the opponent's momentum? Enough times now, Novak has, uh, has taken medical timeouts when the momentum is going against him and then has been able to kind of turn around the match immediately. It, it's happened enough times where it's it's completely fair to say that Novak will take advantage of the medical timeout rule. Now, there are rules about medical timeouts. For example, you are not allowed to take one for cramping. Ultimately, I think that's what was happening to Novak 
when he was playing Vavrinka in the 2016 U.S. Open final. There, there was no apparent injury. In a case like that, the the honus goes on the chair umpire to um to make to make the call there. And I do think that sometimes the the chair does not enforce the rules when it comes to medical timeouts and and lets players take them um, whenever they can. I don't think that Novak should have been allowed to leave the court when um, when the roof was being closed in New York because it was in the middle of the set. And to me, you're not allowed to leave the court. And I don't know the exact rules, okay, here, but. Generally, you're not allowed to go take a back bathroom break in the middle of the set. So I don't know why the chair umpire allowed Novak to do that. It's not really Novak's fault. If Novak says, I'd like to leave the court. The chair umpire now needs to say, no, Novak, uh, you have to wait till the end of the set. That's the end of it. If the chair umpire allows Novak to change his clothes and go and go to the bathroom, um, yeah, that's not Novak's fault. In terms of uh, the the medical timeouts, yeah, I think Novak will will use the medical timeout. But you play a tennis match and you do whatever you can to win within the rules, and there is an umpire who is there to enforce the rules, and that's kind of that's my main thing. That was my main thing at the at the Aussie this year. He took a medical timeout and. Um, it's just it's it's just legal, you know. So it's hard to it's hard to comment on it other than the fact that it's legal. And does does Novak use him when when he's down and not feeling well physically? When some players might not, yeah. How much lower do you think teams' chances are of winning the U.S. Open with these quicker conditions? And then another comment right above it. Um, can you reflect on teams? Dis- what teams' uh, disappointing performance means for his U.S. Open chances? We've seen team overcome conditions that, on at face value, don't seem to suit him. Like at the ATP Finals last year, where he made he made it all the way to the final against Stefano Tsitsipas, but ultimately. The biggest thing is the serve return battle, and the quicker the courts are, the more trouble he has on the return. It's just a shot that team is an elite player, but he does not have an elite return, and he struggled on the quickest courts with his return. And if he plays Milos Raonic, have him losing to Milos Raonic, I would imagine he might have trouble returning serve on on this kind of court. He could prove me wrong. I know he's worked hard on his return. But that's what I that's that would be a, a big hindrance for him. On the Dominic team serve, he really benefits from a more lively bounce, so he can use his his extro- extremely effective kick serve. But I don't even know if these courts, especially at night, will really help his kick serve. You're not going to really beat team in a lot of neutral baseline rallies. I don't care who you are. Perhaps if you're Medvedev, you can do that. But outside of Medvedev and Djokovic, you're, you're really not going to beat team in a lot of neutral baseline rallies. You can win the serve return battle. And these conditions make it that much more likely that 
a skilled opponent can beat team in the serve return battle and ultimately win the match. So yeah, these conditions, they don't help the Austrian at all. Another question about team uh, from a mugs game is, what do you think of team's mindset? Team's mindset is one of the big reasons why I felt like he would win the 2020 U.S. Open because I've, and this was before the Western and Southern Open had begun. This was before I knew the court conditions. This was before he got smoked by Krajinovic in the first round and, and he looked so great in the exhibitions. So many players have gone through what Dominic Team has gone through, is going through right now. Andre Agassi, Yvonne Lendl, Andy Murray, all of those players kept getting close and you know to, to the major finals. And they had lost multiple major finals and they just couldn't take that extra step. I imagine that is that does wonders for motivation. Sometimes there's nothing better for motivation than, than losing. Sometimes winning can actually stunt motivation. I think we see that all the time. You've seen that with Novak. Winning the French Open, finally. You saw it with Pete Sampras. After six years at number one and breaking um, breaking uh, Roy Emerson's record for most major titles. We saw it with Andy Murray. Finally winning Wimbledon. Had a little dip. Sometimes winning can be terrible for motivation and losing can be great for motivation. And as team continues to make major finals and losing in major finals... The only thing I can say about team's mindset is I think he he must be extremely hungry. And I think he both believes, I think he he has confidence, but he also has a chip on his shoulder. The best combination you can have. I just don't think the conditions are really right for him to win this. Given that a lot of top seeds are missing the U.S. Open, it gives opportunity for lower-ranked players to shine this year. Uh, who are the players you think are in the best position to take advantage of the opportunity? I don't think I don't think enough top players are missing for lower-ranked, unseeded players to really be licking their chops. Um, we'll see. Uh, again, Opelka battling the knee injury. I don't know if he's right, but he was someone who I would have had circled in terms of unseeded players. I'm just going to go back to my dark horses. Um, Feliciano Lopez, a dark horse. Let's see how Yannick Sinner plays against Karen Hatchinoff. But I, I actually don't think that there's any real opening for unseeded players here. Second one here is, uh, what do you, why do you think women's tennis has become unidimensional? Typically a baseline slugfest. Uh, do players and coaches make that decision, decision consciously? I mean, if we had someone like a Federer, say Dimitrov, who have more variety in the women's draw, they may have done pretty well. How about Anz Jabur? Ash Barty brings some variety, yes, but majorly it is one-dimensional. I actually, I don't know what the reason for that is. I have to punt on this question. I have no idea. I don't know why there's less variety. I, I, I don't really get it. I'm not sure. Gotta be honest. Question is asked for the second time regarding Nick Kyrgios. I don't I don't concur with your opinion. I believe when we watch tennis as a fan and someone tanks, then whatever his skill level, he doesn't deserve any appreciation. Can you opine on your appreciation for Nick Kyrgios? I don't know. I don't know what my opinion is on, on Nick. I don't know what specific opinion you are referring to. 
my appreciation for him. I mean, look, again, there are some parts of Nick Kyrgios that I resent, and there are some parts of him that I do appreciate. But I'll, I'll never tell you who you should like. I'll, I'll never, I'll never, you'll never catch me telling you what players you should like and what players you don't like. So what I'll say about Kyrgios is, like, the numbers don't lie. He, if you look at his social media following, it is that of a top five player. It is second to none behind Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, and Murray. Look at his social media following. Look at what courts he is booked to play on when there are fans, because tournament organizers know that he'll fill up the stadium. Just look at these things. He is popular because he is a he goes against the 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 current. He is popular because. Bad boys are are always popular in certain parts. Jimmy Jimmy Connors was popular. John McEnroe was popular. And Nick Kyrgios is popular. Now Kyrgios is not even close to Jim. Kyrgios is a little bit different than than those two. So I don't know because those two both cared deeply about winning. So Kyrgios is different in that respect. Um, but I don't know. Look. Again, I'll never tell anyone that they should like Kyrgios. And I, I won't make an argument that, that you should like Kyrgios. All right. Let me go to the next set of questions on this mailbag. How long have I been talking? 21 minutes. I'll probably go 35 minutes. Do you think Djokovic is overhitting his second serve or are his health problems giving is his health giving him problems with that? If you look at how he hit it in Australia this year, and really before he complained of the neck injury or pulled out of the doubles in Cincinnati, he had been hitting his second serve big and it had been just fine. So no, I think that if if Novak feels confident enough in his serving and comfortable enough in his serving where he feels that he can hit second serves 105 miles per hour consistently, that's awesome. That's great. No, I don't think he's overhitting. All of his second serves, there was some kind of technical issue. I think what was happening is perhaps because of his neck, he was putting his toss too far out in front, and he wasn't really getting the kick. If you look at most of his second serves, he was missing them long. He wasn't missing them in the net. So I just think there was some technical issue that had to do with where he was comfortable putting the toss, and that in combination with his, stick his stiff neck, it was just... Uh, I do attribute the second serve issues to his neck. Potential Team Medvedev Semi. Who's your pick? I'd personally like to see it. Team Medvedev Semi. I like Medvedev. I think he, again, I think he wins the serve return battle on this surface. Uh, team's kick serve wouldn't bother Medvedev. Tall player. Very comfortable playing and returning the second serve from the back fence. Very comfortable hitting backhand returns. In fact, he, he prefers it. Um, and then from there, I would think that Medvedev can do enough to dis disrupt Dominic Team's rhythm. Um, he can avoid the kind of dangerous red line, redlining from the baseline that Dominic is some sometimes capable of. So I would have uh, Medvedev there. Subject to change, of course. Whenever I make a prediction before I see these... I mean, remember, I've only seen Team play two sets in the last two months so 
Why do the hardcore Grand Slams seem to change surface speeds every 10 years or so, including this year's U.S. Open? Whereas Wimbledon has maintained the relatively slower grass for about two decades now, and Roland Garros has maintained the same clay surface with slight modifications throughout its history. Uh, the Australian Open and U.S. Open appear to c contract with different companies to change their court speed and aesthetic every decade. Do you think this hurts consistency in preparation or encourages adaptability? I don't think it hurts consistency in preparation because players are, especially if you're a top player and you're not playing you know, challengers or if you're not playing some other tournament the week before the U.S. Open, you're in New York practicing a week before the tournament even starts. So I think players will always get plenty of time to get used to the conditions, and that's never really an excuse, especially for the top players. I will also point out that um, the French Open might play differently this year because they're actually changing the ball. They are going, I believe, to Babylon, Dunlop to Babylon, or now don't quote me on that because I'm fuzzy. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it is. But I do know for a fact, you can quote me on this, uh, the French Open is playing with new balls, different, uh, different balls this year. So the conditions might change. What does Tsitsipas have to do if he wants to beat Djokovic in the U.S. Open? Dominate with his forehand and come forward readily. But the forehand would need to take over the match against Novak. Can Murray make a deep run to round four? He just needs to get through Nishioka. Nishioka's a tough first round, certainly. I have Murray uh, losing to Felix. Um, what round would that potential match be in? Let me let me find that for you guys. Um, that would be the third round. So no, yeah, I mean, that's where I have... Oh no, that's the second round, excuse me. Yeah, Murray has Felix and Dan Evans... In his uh, section, that that's brutal. So no, I don't think Murray can make the fourth round. I, I predicted him to go far. Western and Southern Open to the quarterfinals. I had Murray. He only made it to uh, the round of 16. He did it indeed upset Alexander Zverev. But best of five is a totally different, different story compared to best of three. And physically, he doesn't appear to be ready for that. What do you think of the prospects of Alcaraz, young winner of the challenger in, is it um, Trieste? Trieste? Trieste means sad, I know, in Spanish. Um, or too early to tell. It's not too early to tell. He's tremendous. He He's outstanding. He's going to be a very good pro. I want to hold off. I want to watch him more. I want to hold off on making in-depth comments on Alcaraz, but one to watch, incredibly impressive. Do you think next gen would beat lost gen? Definitely. I think next gen is a lot better than lost gen. I think I've, I've, the only reason I won't give you a long answer on that is because I believe I've covered it um, actually quite recently in, in one of the mailbags. Hi, Gil. Wanted to get your thoughts on something. Do you think the next gen suffers from a lack of good scheduling or just lack of training? It seems as though we have had six months with no tennis and nothing seems to have changed. 
Novak came back right where he left off. Are the next gen simply not good in terms of talent? What do you think players like Team Tsitsipas and Medvedev need to do to win the U.S. Open and not just reach the final slash semi and lose to Djokovic in some tight match? Novak Djokovic is is an all-time player. All-time player. Nobody nobody would argue that. So, I mean, you're, you're comparing the next gen to this unbelievable standard, right? We don't say Andy Murray has no talent because he wasn't as good as Federer and Nadal or Djokovic. We don't say Stan Wawrinka had no talent. We don't say... Um, I mean, we don't say Marit Safin or David Nalbandian, who never even won a major. We don't say they, they don't have any talent. Same thing for the next gen. Just because you can't beat Djokovic in a major final doesn't mean you don't have talent. So I, I would I would just lay off um, on, on that because they're extremely young and Djokovic is all-time great. Any thoughts on the new Players Association? Okay, let me let me give provide background first on this. Coming up on on thirty minutes here, so I'll try to be kind of tight on this. Um, but as of now, the current structure, most of you are aware that there is an ATP Players Council. What that does is it it pits the ATP and the ATP players as kind of the same body. So if a, a big decision has to be made in tennis, all the Grand Slams sit down in the boardroom. Imagine a meeting. The ITF sits down. The WTA sits down. The ATP sits down. All these people sit down and they make a decision. The players don't have their own governing body they don't have their own association which which is what has been created here to sit down and be a part of these decisions right now it's kind of unclear what the association is mainly looking to achieve and that's my biggest hold up that's my biggest kind of hesitation and i'm still gathering information on this I got to say, I haven't really wanted to dive headfirst into this because I've just been like, really? We have to worry about this right now? The U.S. Open is about to start, and now we have some political revolution that we have to worry about? It's kind of like, why now? Like, can, can we can we do this another time? Now, that's, that's just my—that um, was kind of my— selfish reaction and I kind of wanted to push it off to the side a little bit um, players organizing for power could be a good thing um, because right now it seems like it seems like they don't have much so I don't know it, it's hard to say I don't have a hard line stance on this I want more information and I'm not alone Daniil Medvedev was like, I need more information. I don't understand what's going on. Now, that's a bad sign. Like, that looks bad on the Players Association. The fact that some players are like, what the heck is this? I don't understand. I, I'm not signing this. I, what, what's going on? The fact that some players are saying that is not a great sign. It means that the communication isn't on point. 
but I'm kind of in the same place. I'm I'm there. Could be a really good thing. All right. We're getting towards the bottom here. Um Let's see. Potential Felix versus Murray in the second round. Well, it'll be on Felix's racket for sure. And I'm sure Andy will put a lot of pressure on Felix's second serve. Um, I'm just thinking that Felix has a chance to dictate so much in that match. I'm wondering if over best of five, that could really wear Andy down. And Andy hasn't been as consistent as he needs to be. Andy knows that. So that also kind of mitigates what should be a really big advantage for Murray in the consistency department. Kind of mitigates that the way the way Murray's been playing. But I just think with the firepower Felix has, I wonder if Murray's just going to get tired to do tired of doing as much defending as he probably will have to. Here's another one um, about Djokovic using injuries and various momentum breakers like medical timeouts underplaying tanking to edge out his opponents. Again, I mean, Novak never breaks the rules, really. He just doesn't break the rules. Sometimes the chair, sometimes the umpire doesn't enforce the rules when they should, but he never breaks the rules. But, you know, to me, he is. He's feeling the momentum of the match. He is trying to figure out how he can break the momentum of the match. Whether that be, mm, you know what, I'm going to wait until the next set until I play, until I really push hard. But, Again, I, I said this in my in my breakdown of the match. Lots of players do that. It's not just Novak. Lots of players, when they're down big in a set, don't want to play their best at the end of the set, but they want to wait until the next set. All right. Let's do something else. You should ask a question in your video, and we will answer in the comments section. Okay. I mean, I, I think I do do that sometimes. Um, all right, that is it. Yeah, there's another, um, why do you think the courts were sped up so much this year? Different company. I don't know. They wanted to use a different company. I actually did think though that they said that it got a little bit too slow in their opinion. Oh, last one. Do you think Serena can make it 24? I don't think so. She's got to play a lot better than I've seen her play as of late to, uh, to make it 24. All right, everyone, um, this has been a lot of fun. Um, content plan, as much as I can possibly do. I'm a lot busier during the week than I am on the weekends, but um, as much as I can possibly do. Enjoy the tennis, everyone. U.S. Open is underway. How great is that? Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly 
Eye on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.